podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, April the 1st. No fools here other than me on April Fool's Day. We are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network. allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, access Peacock if you want to do that. You can get a Peacock subscription from the UK. If you want to access Now TV, but you're not in the UK, you can also do things like that. It will keep your data safe online. LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And we are sending all of the good vibes from everybody here at EPL Index, Anfield Index, myself, my family. To Greg Hopcroft right now, going through a bit of a tough time. Thoughts what you made. Really hope, really hope everything, you know, comes good. I, I know it's probably not going to, but we're, we're thinking about you uh, every every day. Um, right, folks. It is Thursday. That means it's Twitter questions. Uh, we'll quickly just wrap up the news. England have been knocked out of the under-21 Euros uh, despite a 2-1 victory over Croatia, a last-minute belter from the Croats knocked England out. A.D. Boothroyd, an absolute shambles of a, of a managerial performance across the competition. He really needs to go. England need to appoint somebody far better than him as under-21 manager. He's just not suited to the position. You can do so much better, England. You really can do so much better. It doesn't need to be a name. You need to get development coaches in there. Go and find an excellent young developmental coach. Put them in charge and help them create the pathway for the players to make their way through their first team. Uh, England beat Poland in the senior international. Harry Kane with a penalty after a dive by Raheem Sterling. And it was a dive. There can be no doubt. Uh, A John Stones howler allowed Brighton's Jacob Motor to equalize. And then Harry Slabhead Maguire with a volley uh, 10 minutes left in the game to secure the third consecutive win for Mr. Southgate and co. Uh, Good start for England, obviously. It's not the toughest group, and obviously Poland, without Lewandowski, uh, not the the threat they would be otherwise. Um, Big news for Liverpool. Liverpool and Boston Red Sox owners Fenway Sports Group have confirmed investment from the Redbird Capital Partners. It's believed they have bought a stake which values FSG as a whole. They also own the New England Sports Network and I believe a NASCAR team. But the whole lot is is valued now at £5.32 billion sterling. It's a 10% investment for around £530 million. 
LeBron James is involved and some of his business partners. What this means for Liverpool, nobody's really sure as yet, but I think there is one question that I saw about it, so we'll get into that a bit more. Uh, Chelsea topped the the table, I suppose, in terms of fees paid to agents over the last 12 months, paying out £35 million to player reps. Uh, the FA have published their annual report on payments and transactions involving registered intermediaries. Um, £35 million by Chelsea, £4 million by West Brom at the other end of the table. So, you know, they're clearly shopping in different in different markets, but West Brom, you have to do a little bit more. You have to do a little bit more. You're, you're new in the Premier League. You have to do a little bit more. You didn't. You did things on the cheap, and now you're going back down. The Premier League as a whole paid out $272 million in agents' fees between February 2020 and February 2021, so covering the summer and January transfer windows. Not ideal. Really not ideal. Um, and UEFA have lifted the cap on fans for the Euros and Champions League final. Now, it's not really their decision to make because it, it will be down to the individual countries hosting events. But the committee had originally decided in October 2020 to limit the number of fans at games uh, to 30%. With restrictions changing, they're going to allow certain countries who've done better with the pandemic to have more fans. And then obviously certain countries that haven't done so well will have less um it, it's good news look it's good news it means that we're getting back towards the point where fans will be back in stadiums hopefully by next season we're going to see if not a hundred percent we might see 70 percent capacity at some stadiums it's promising it it shows that we are edging towards the end of this pandemic which you know i, I think we're all ready for it <laughs> we've been ready we've been ready it's been a year it has been a full year of this. Ireland's first level five began just over a year ago. I assume the UK's did as well. I don't have that off the top of my head. But a full year of it. We've we've lost a full year and we won't get it back. But look, it, it'll be something to tell future generations about. Um, and, and we'll always remember how incompetent our governments were. And that'll be fun to reminisce on. Um, like I said, it is it is Twitter day, so we've got the que- the tweet out this morning. I think there's fifteen or sixteen questions, uh, so we'll we'll jump right into them. Uh, Mikhail Campbell, um, why do you think Italian players historically tend not to move to clubs outside of Italy? I mean, there's five, uh, there's six big clubs in Italy. There's five very wealthy clubs or, or have been very wealthy at different points. And then there's Napoli in the South who are a big club in their own right. So you've got Juve, you've got the two Milan clubs and the two Rome clubs and at different stages, they've all been powerhouses and they've all just snapped up the best Ital- Italian talent, whether that was, you know, Milan and Juve in the early nineties, Ace, uh, Inter Milan, obviously at the time, a little bit more focused on bringing in overseas players then you had the Rome clubs sort of at the end of the 90s into the 2000s. And then you had Juve and Milan again up until Calciopoli. And then you had Inter. 
And then Juventus, once they got themselves back together, uh, they always just snapped up the best Italian players. So the players never really had the opportunity. As well as that, you know, you look at from 86 to 06, Serie A was the place to be. There was no reason to leave. It was the best league in the world. It was where all the glamour players were. So you wanted to stay there and you wanted to be part of it. A bit like why we don't see top English players leave all that often and go overseas. I mean, Steve McManaman is, I would say, the most successful of English players who've gone abroad. We've seen it. I mean, Lineker went in the 80s. You know, Owen went. But McManaman was the one that went away and won two Champions Leagues. Um, I just think those two leagues have always been a little bit like that. The Spaniards... It's only really, I suppose, since 2000 that they started to go abroad. And even at that, most of the very best stayed home. I mean, if you look at the team that won, you know, the three international tournaments in a row, Casillas stayed home, went to Porto at the end of his career. Um, Ramos stayed in Spain. Puyol went to United early, went back to Spain Sorry, PK went to United early, went back to Spain. Puyol stayed. Capdevia stayed. Xavi, Iniesta and Busquets all stayed. And then David Villa stayed until he went to America. David Silva obviously moved to, to City. Sesk moved early as well. Torres moved. But the majority stayed home because for a long spell, the Spanish League was the best around as well. So I think it's just... You know, there's, it's it's a mix of things. Their, their own leagues are strong enough to sustain. There's always been a couple of dominant teams that have just picked up the best young players of their own nationality. And then those leagues have been so strong and they've had the most money. From, you know, from 06 through most of the 90s, Serie A had most of the money. You know, when English clubs were spending 15 million on players and 20 million on players, the Italian clubs were spending 30 million on players. You know, they were breaking the world transfer record almost every season. Um, and then the same kind of thing happened in England for years and then in Spain. So I think it's a, it's a mix of things, but it's not overly surprising to me, to be totally honest. Uh, Mikhail has a second question here. Who would win a match between the 2013 treble winning Bayern team and the 2020 treble winning Bayern team? So this is actually interesting because... That 2013 team was great. Now, you had Manuel Nauer in goal. You had Lam and Alaba as the fullbacks. Boateng and Dante as the centre-backs. That's, fullbacks are great, the centre-backs less so. Ribery and Robin were the first-choice wingers. It's just that they were, you know, fairly frequently injured. Uh, Muller played as a 10 Schweinsteiger and Cruz largely in central midfield. And then uh, Mario Mandzukic was sort of the main number nine with Mario Gomez off the bench. It's a very strong team. Cruz wasn't the Cruz that we know at that point. And Schweinsteiger was coming towards the end, as was um, as was uh, Lamb. He would play well, a couple more years, four more years maybe. But all things considered, great goalkeeper, great fullbacks, okay at centre-back, 
a good mix in midfield. Great wingers, they just couldn't stay fit. A brilliant number 10. Uh, and an okay number 9. I mean, Mandzukic was very good at, at times, but certainly not of the, of the level of Lewandowski. Now, you look at the team that won last season, Kingsley Coleman and, and Gnabry on the wings. Not as proven as Robin and Ribery, but I would say more reliable. Coleman, maybe not so much because obviously he's had injury problems as well, but when he's on, he's sensational. Gnabry was incredible last season. Muller's still the 10. He's not the player he was, but he's still very good. Lewandowski's a massive upgrade on Mandzukic. You had Goretzka and Thiago as the midfield pairing. That's better than what they had in, in 2013. Kimmich and Alaba as the fullbacks. Oh, sorry, it was Kimmich and Davies as the fullbacks. Davies is going to be great. He's not Alaba, though. Alaba played centre-back next to Boateng. Boateng's not as good as he was then. But Alaba, I think, is better than Dante. Kimmich and, and Lam is a wash. Now we're still there in goal. Not as good as he was, but still very good. I would say, overall, last year's team wins. I think the balance was better. I think they could rely more on their key players in terms of fitness. I would say the 2020 team would win, but it'd be a hell of a match. Now, the other thing to consider is is the managers. Obviously, Hansi Flick last year, uh, Jupp Heynckes in 2013. I would take Jupp over, over Hansi, but oh, look, Hansi Flick has done incredible work there. Uh, but Heynckes won you know, two Champions Leagues, one with Real Madrid and then that one with Bayern. He was a, a tremendous manager who had a career probably not befitting a manager of, of his ability. He bounced around quite a bit, but he, he was he was tremendous. So I, I would go the 2020 team, but I would want him as the manager. Uh, Connor Sheehan asks, has a team in recent football history sustained genuine success without a solid defensive midfielder? Um. Manchester United, that last Ferguson team, tended to play Michael Carrick as the defensive midfielder. Michael Carrick was very, very good. He's the most underrated English player of his of his generation. But he wasn't a natural defensive midfielder. But he could get away with playing there because he read the game brilliantly, had a great sense of position, anticipated things very, very well, and made smart decisions. They also played a water carrier next to him in Darren Fletcher, who did a lot of the running. I would say they're probably the only example that spring to mind of sustaining success without a proper defensive midfielder there. You could argue last year's Bayern team didn't have it, but again, it's not sustained. And the Bundesliga is not... The Bundesliga isn't the most competitive league in the world. If, if we're all being honest, Bayern have an enormous advantage. They can afford to play without a defensive midfielder. But Kimmich did play there quite a bit as well last season, and he would fill that role. So I would say the United team, that last iteration under Ferguson, probably the best example. Um, Alex Wilson, if you had to pick a manager for England, France, Spain, Netherlands, Argentina, and Brazil from current Premier League managers, who would be the best fit based on the players available Manager's style of play and regardless of the manager's nationality. For England, I think I would go with Pep. With the attacking talent they have there, plus the 
profile of most of their defenders as ball players. I think Pep would be the one. The one thing he'd lack is a goalkeeper, but I think he'd get a bit more out of Pickford. But Dean Henderson is probably the one he'd develop. He'd probably take hold of Dean Henderson and go with him. Pickford is a little like Claudio Claudio Bravo was. He, good with his feet, not a great shot stopper, as you know, as he was at City. Bravo was a great goalkeeper before he got to City. Something went wrong. But I think Pep for England would be the one. For France, again, you've got a lot of elite talent, but much of it is is defensive. I mean, if he wasn't making such a pig's ear of the Spurs job, you'd say Mourinho, because Griezmann and Mbappe were born to play on the counter-attack. I'd probably still go with Jose, but I mean, I'd be looking for the old Jose rather than the new one, because I mean, nobody really wants the new Jose. It's not going well at, at Spurs. They're probably going to miss top four, which is a, it's an absolute disaster for them. Uh, considering what they had, um, what what the, what they spent in the summer, maybe you'd go Carlo. Do you know what I would? I'd, I'd go Carlo because Carlo is great defensively and very very clever with what he does going forward. I'd go Carlo for for France, for Spain. I quite like Brendan Rodgers as a fit for Spain, if I'm honest. Style of play, patient build-up. I think Brendan's probably the best fit. For Germany, I mean, the obvious one would be Klopp, but I, I actually don't think Klopp is brilliantly suited to this current German squad. I'd be inclined to go with Nuno as a back three manager. I'd go Nuno. Um, for the Netherlands... I'd go Thomas Tuchel. Yeah, I think Tuchel for the Netherlands. Again, potential to play the back three. Build everything through the middle of the park with De Jong playing the role he had Verratti playing. Lots of movement up front built around the likes of Malin and Depay. I'd be inclined to go Tuchel for the Netherlands. Argentina... Is the one I think I go for Klopp because I think there's talent there, but not an endless supply of it. But when you look at players like Nico Gonzalez at Stuttgart, like Lucas Acampos at Sevilla, I think they're very Klopp players. I think he constructed to work with Messi. Latour Martinez strikes me as someone Klopp would love. They've got a good crop of centre-backs. They're all just young and a little bit underdeveloped. But the likes of Christian Romero, the likes of Lisandro Martinez, I think they would work for Klopp. The one thing they're lacking is that dominant, powerful centre-back that Klopp likes. The, the Van Dijk, the uh, Subotic, Hummels type. But I think other than that, I, I do quite like the fit of the Argentine squad for um, for Klopp. And then for Brazil, 
Brazil is tough because I think Brazil would be best off playing a box midfield with Fabinho and Casemiro sitting and then two players out to in and then two up top. Neymar plus probably Gabby Jesus at this point or maybe Richarlison. Bielsa plays the back three, 4-1-4-1, 3-1, 3-3. I mean, Bielsa's the best of the ones I haven't named, but I don't think he's necessarily the best suited. And he's obviously got a track record at an international level. I really like the other ones that I've picked, though. Um, I don't know for Brazil is is the the honest answer. I really don't know. I don't know there's a manager in the Premier League that is well suited to that squad of players to how to best get you know the most out of them. I know people are a bit down on them. I'd maybe go Graham Potter. Because I think stylistically he'd work. He'd have to bend the back three. You, you can't be playing a back three for Brazil. Well, they won the World Cup playing a back three, I suppose. So maybe um, the O2 team played a uh, played a back three, but they're the most unpopular Brazilian team uh, to to ever be anyway decent um, because they were a little bit dull. Do you know what? I, I'll go Graham Potter and I'll let him play his back three. If he if he goes with, uh, let's say. Marquinhos and Militao either side of Thiago Silva who just won't retire you go Lodi as the left wing back and maybe Emerson of Real Betis as the right wing back I'm probably missing somebody Sit Fabinho and Casemiro as a double pivot the way they had planned to sit Emerson and Gilberto Silva it ended up being Cleberson and Gilberto Silva and then, and he does like to play with that that kind of holding too. He's played Ben White and Basuma at times this season. I think he'll end up playing Basuma and Motor more and more. Neymar then is a ten, and then you can play Jesus as your goal scoring nine, and then Richarlison to run the channels. I'll go Graham Potter for Brazil, but it's a stretch. He's obviously never going to get a job of that nature. Um, B Carolino asks, do you think Liverpool should go for a so-called out-and-out striker or someone who could play as a winger and striker, someone like a Jota? I think they should go for an out-and-out nine. Uh, I've gone back on for- back and forth on this. I think a nine is is what we need at the club. And I've pretty much, like, I've, I've gone back and forth with Darwin Nunes, who I think is, is hugely talented and not having a great season for uh, Benfica, but I, I do think there's a lot there to work with. Uh, and Dusan Vlahovic of, of uh, Fiorentina, who's having a good season, but he's still a little bit raw, a little bit underdeveloped and a little bit inconsistent. They were the two, because like, obviously Haaland is the dream, but being realistic, Liverpool aren't going to sign Haaland. So I was going back and forth on them, and then I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and I started watching a lot of Sevilla games, largely to watch uh, Jules Kunde, and also to watch Lucas Acampos. And I have completely fallen in love with Yusuf Naziri, 
um, the Moroccan striker, and I think he's the one. He can also play wide if you need him to, but you really want him through the middle. I think he ticks all the boxes for Liverpool. He's big and strong, 6'2", well-built, really quick feet, good on the ball, a scrappy type of dribbler, a little bit Suarez-esque, bounces the ball off the opponent's shins and bustles his way through, um, and a great finisher, a lethal left-footed finisher. There's times where he looks like just a proper penalty box player, and then there's times where he drifts out to the right wing, picks the ball up, does a step over, beats a man, gets into the box, and he'll try and bend it in the far corner. And you, you look at it and you think, well, that's Riyad Mahrez. So Yusuf El-Naziri is, is the striker that I, I would go for. I think he is, at 23, he'll turn 24 this summer. I think he's perfectly poised to take a massive step forward. He's had a big uptick this year, 21 and 42, uh, 15 and 28 in the league. Last season, a bit of a quieter season, 10 in 45, 11 and 34 the year before that. Um, but I, I really think he is rounding into his own. When you look at his shot profile, and Sam McGuire put it out from the 20 Sport account when West Ham were linked to him back in January, this guy, is it, his finishing is lethal. It's, it's Jota-esque, his shot placement. So he's the one I would go for. A nine who can play wide if needed, as opposed to someone who's kind of caught in between the two. Um, I think En Naziri and Salah as a as a two, or En Naziri and Jota as a two, works really well. He's a good hold-up player. His link-up play is good. Still has work to do. He's not the finished product yet, but like I say, he's 23. Uh, he's the one I would go for. Um, Eddie Gibbs, David Rowcastle died 20 years ago. Who was he? David Rowcastle was one of the most... Now, Eddie obviously knows who he was. He's just, I think, asking for, you know, a little bit of talk on Rocky. David Rowcastle is one of the most talented players English football has ever produced. He broke through at Arsenal in the mid-90s, sort of mid-80s, and was just a revelation of a player. Um, incredible athlete, technically off the scale. Absolutely off the scale. His dribbling, his passing, his first touch, lightning quick, a powerful runner from midfield. Suffered a bad knee injury that really kind of cut him off in his prime. Ended up at Leeds for a year, Man City for a year. Spent a few years at Chelsea but could never really stay fit. Uh, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. In 2001, at the age of just 33, and um, and died a month later, or two months later, it might have. Oh, sorry, actually, he was he was diagnosed in October uh, 2000. He announced it in February 2001 and died a month later. David Rowcastle is one of the great lost talents of English football. The injury to the knee was the first sort of hammer blow. And then obviously, you know, he passed away at, at 33. But yeah, David Rowcastle was a sensational football player. He had absolutely everything you'd want. If you put him in today's game as a, an attacking number eight, he would just be perfect for this league. Little bit De Bruyne-esque. Little bit Gerrard-esque. 
not as big a physical presence as them, only 5'9", but well-built, really strong, but could carry the ball, had every kind of pass you would want. David Rowcastle is the best player that Arsenal Academy ever produced. And it, it produced some absolute belters over the years. But he's the best of them. And, um, yeah, very, very, very sad time when he passed away. Arsenal have done, you know, really well to, you know, honour his memory. The the indoor centre at their academy is named in his honour. His name is displayed at the stadium. Uh, absolutely brilliant player. There's a documentary on him. Um, and I would highly recommend that everybody go and watch it. Uh, I'll get you the name now. David Rocastle documentary. It's called Rocky and Righty from Brocky to the Big Time. Brocky to the Big Time. So they knew each other as kids, Rocastle and Ian Wright. And um, yeah, it's a BT Sports documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Uh, just type in Rocky and Righty. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Do check that one out. David Rowcastle, yeah, rest in peace. Uh, an absolutely phenomenal player. Uh, we'll take a quick break on that sad note. And when we come back, we'll get through the rest of these here questions. Right, welcome back. Um, hopefully now a, a happier theme than what we ended on uh, with that David Rowcastle bit. But yeah, um, Alison esque Alison Esk asks, as someone who wasn't old enough to see Ryan Giggs play in his prime, how good was he at his peak? And was he really better than the likes of Hazard and Salah, as quite a few Man United fans on this platform say? Oh, how good was Ryan Giggs? Ryan Giggs, was, he was incredible. He was. He was absolutely incredible. The issue with Giggs was always consistency. Now, it wasn't that he'd have a good game and a bad game. He'd have a great game, and then he'd have a, a good game. And then a great game and a good game. He was always a solid 7 out of 10. But then he, you know, he'd throw you these 9 and 10 out of 10 games. You'd think, if you could just do that every game, he'd probably be the best player in the world. Um, when he broke through United at, at 17, he was just a phenomenal, phenomenal player. And he had this pace and this ability to just go past players and sling crosses into the box. Like, you go back to the early 90s, and there was talk of AC Milan paying £40 million for him. This is at a time when the world record transfer fee was about £13 million, and they were talking about blowing it all up to buy him. He had some bad injuries that cost him a little bit of his pace. But when you see him do things like the, the goal against Arsenal in the FA Cup final, phenomenal. I would say he was more naturally talented than either Hazard or Salah. And they're obviously both incredibly gifted players. He was a he was about as consistent as Hazard, but Hazard's best seasons are probably better than Giggs's. But Giggs's bad seasons, quote-unquote, wouldn't be nearly as bad as Hazard's. I would have him above Eden Hazard uh, for myself. He he didn't reach the heights that that Salah reached, and Salah is is consistently great year on year. I would rank them Salah one, Giggs two, Hazard three. But you do have to factor in Giggs did it for twenty plus years. No, was it twenty plus years? 
How long did Ryan Giggs play for Manchester United's first team? However long it was, it was incredible. Giggs made his day. De- yeah, yeah. 1990, he made his debut till 2014. So 20 plus years. Giggs's longevity elevates him. Um, but I would say Salah's best years better than Giggs's best years. But Giggs was consistently great for probably, well, consistently very good for probably, I'd say 14 years. From about 94 to 2008, Giggs was consistently very good. Then he transitioned into a different phase of his career. Um, played a lot more in central midfield, obviously, in, in later years. Very intelligent player. Very underrated passer of the ball and, and showed that late in his career. Um, Giggs, was, he was just, he was, he was tremendous. He really, really was. And, and what he did for that long was fantastic. So, um, I would I would rank them Salah, Giggs, Hazard. But when you look at longevity and and the overall career, I mean, Giggs is Giggs is clearly clearly the number one of the three. I mean, every Premier League title United won, they won with Ryan Giggs as part of it. Thirteen titles. He's the only player that spanned that entire time. Uh, four FA Cups, three League Cups, two Champions Leagues. Yeah, I, I, you you would give it to Giggs in terms of best career, but I think Salah's best is is better than Giggs's best, and he did it more consistently. Um, Emmett, aka Emmett, if every manager in football became a free agent, ranking them one to five, who would get the most offers? In your opinion, I think Klopp would be one, Pep would be two, and the reason Pep would be two is because. I think a lot of clubs would that would feel like they couldn't back Pep the way he wants to be backed financially. Klopp will work with less. So I think you'd go Klopp one, Pep two. Um, Carlo, again, specific. You have to have the money to back him. Bielsa is great, but I, I think a lot of clubs might shy away from him. Rodgers is probably three. Because, again, I don't think he needs the massive budget. Now, he doesn't deliver the same type of success, obviously. But I think a lot of clubs would buy into Brendan Rodgers. He'd sell them, certainly, in interviews. Um, Dice would get an awful lot of offers because half the, ta- half the league just want to stay in the league. So Dice would get a bunch of offers. He'll always get the best out of people. As for the fifth, I don't see many wanting Arteta. I think most of Dean Smith's offers would come from lower league. Potter, he's a bit niche at the moment. Tuchel would be the other one. Tuchel, yeah. It would, you'd go Klopp, Pep, Rogers, Tuchel. The reason you'd have Tuchel below Rogers, despite Tuchel being the better manager, is because he's difficult. Now, Brendan is difficult as well. and. Brendan's always got his eye on the next job, but I still think Brendan, being British as well, he's, he's Irish, but he's Northern Irish, so people look at him as being British. I, I think they that would favour him as well. So I think I think Dyche should be fifth. But again, it, not that Dyche is better than certain other managers. I think he's better than most, but most clubs just want to stay in the Premier League. 
And if you just want to stay in the Premier League, who better than Sean Dyche? Palace would take him. Saints would take him. Burnley, Toon, Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield United would all take Sean Dyche in a heartbeat. I think West Ham would take him because I think that's the mindset of their owners. Everton came close to getting him. And I, I do think Dyche with more money will get you more results as well. I mean, he's had two top half finishes with Burnley. So if you give him more money, I, I do think he could potentially push you into Euro, into European position. So maybe an Aston Villa or an Everton would look at him as well. But yeah, I, I think those would be the five. Um, Gordon, uh, Gordon, I can't pronounce his surname. Chaloner? Chaloner? Uh, who should get the England under 20? I should really get better at pronouncing names. I'm, I'm really sorry, Gordon. Uh, who should get the England under 21 job? And will A.D. Boothroyd ever get another club job? Um, yeah, he, he probably will. He'll get a job in the lower leagues, which is more suiting to a manager of his ability, let's say. Um, like a Colchester, Northampton, somebody in that Lincoln League one, league two, that's where he'll end up. That's kind of his level. Um, as for who should get the job, I mean, they're, they're going to go for somebody English. We, we know that. That's, that's absolute fact. They're not going to go outside the, the group. I quite like uh, Ian, Forster, Ian Foster, who manages the... Um, the under-19s team, I think he's done well. He's obviously built his way up through the under-18s as well. If it was me, I mean, I've seen some people say Eddie Howe. I, I just don't think Eddie Howe is, is going to step out of club management to the under-21s. For the senior job, I think he would, but not for the under-21s. Uh, it still amuses me that Lee Carsley is the manager of... Uh, of the 20 team. That that to me is funny. Kevin Betsy is the manager of the under 18s. He was with the 16s, the 70s, 17s and now the 18s. He's got a good reputation as a development coach. I don't know a whole bunch about him, I have to be honest. And then uh, Justin Cochran is over in the 70s and again he's come 15, 16, 17s. He's the youngest of the group. Um He might be the one. He might be the one. Again, I don't know enough about him. Ideally, if you could convince Pep and Linders or someone like him, I think that's the type of coach that you want. Rene Muhlenstein, if he was willing to take it, Rene Muhlenstein would be perfect. As a developmental coach, he's one of the very best around. Now, he's currently the assistant manager of Australia. I don't know if he'd be willing to walk away from that, but Rene Munison as a developmental coach, sensational. Six years in the United uh, system as a developmental coach, six years as the first team coach under Ferguson, well-schooled, well-traveled, been around. Uh, Rene Munison would actually be the one. He's the one I'd go for because... I think Muhlenstein is is brilliant at what he does, which is make players better. Um, he he's the one I'd go for. 
Or, again, somebody, if you could find a younger version of him, maybe that's a better fit. But Mullenstein's the one I'd pick. Um, Maddie Holdsworth asks, how can you recommend pouring a Guinness from a can to an Aussie who can't get it on tap? I'm the worst person to ask because I don't, I don't drink and I never drank Guinness when I did drink. Um, John O'Sullivan has shared an Instagram uh, post. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's somebody showing how to how to pour a Guinness, but um, yeah, I'm the, I'm the wrong person to ask. YouTube. There is definitely going to be tutorials on YouTube. I will send you in that direction. Um, Callum Perry. What do you think the chances are this Redbird investment could create a model like Red Bull or the City Group, uh, where they've developed having other clubs with Liverpool at the top of a pyramid? It's possible. There was a report, I think, from Simon Hughes a couple of months ago that it wasn't something they were considering. Um, I, I kind of feel like it is something that has been looked at. I know for a fact. They looked very strongly at buying a club in Austria a couple of years ago. Um, they own, if I'm not mistaken, they own Bordeaux. Redbird Capital own Bordeaux. No, sorry, Toulouse. Is it Toulouse they own? Yeah, it's Toulouse they own. Um, maybe. Maybe it's what the plan would be. I don't think they'll go to the level of what City have done. Um, but I could see them adding maybe two or three clubs strategically placed in countries that, number one, easy to get work permits so you can bring through African and South American players. Um, number two, there'll be leagues that will qualify to get work permits for England. Number three, leagues that are easily accessible for, you know, for the for Liverpool to move into, uh, like like I said, like Austria, like Belgium, like France. Don't think they'll go and look in like you know, Japan or anywhere like that. I think it'll be European based. I I don't see them buying an MLS franchise, for example. I don't think they'll buy an A League franchise. Uh, I, I think they'll they'll look to more base it in Europe because I, I don't think they'll do it on the on the level that um, that the City Group have done or even that Red Bull have done. They've got I think Ghana is it Ghana and Brazil along with the New York Red Bulls, the two clubs in Austria and and Leipzig. Um, I, I think you could see I, I definitely think you could see them have substantial stakes in. Three clubs outside of Liverpool. Uh, Toulouse is one. Maybe they go back to the Austrian, the Austrian route, and maybe Belgium as the third. Um, that that to me would make sense because France is a hotbed for young talent at the minute. Austria seems to be a really good place to bring young players through, and. There's just a track record in Belgium, you know, of players being able to get work permits and develop quite well. So that would be my guess. That would be my guess. Um, Jamie Buck asks, 10 years ago, we had many top class nines, 
number nines in the league. Torres, Drogba, Van Persie, Tevez, Berbatov, Suarez, Aguero, uh, Rooney. Um, and, and Defoe to a lesser extent. Now the only top class nine in the league is Kane. With the rise of Erling Haaland, do you expect to see nines become more prominent? I do. I actually do. Uh, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think when you look at the likes of uh, of En Naziri, you look at the likes of uh, Darwin Nunes, Maxi Gomez to a lesser extent, he hasn't really developed at Valencia, but that type of player. I do think you're going to see more and more out-and-out nines appear. Um and I do think they'll they'll start to filter into the Premier League a lot more. City are gonna are gonna need to buy a, a number nine this summer. United don't really have a number nine. They've got Cavani, obviously, and they look a lot better when Cavani plays. They had Lukaku. Martial's good, but again, I think he's kind of he's a bit of a tweener. He's not a left winger, he's not a nine, he's in between. So Unless you're playing three up front, he doesn't really work for you properly. Uh, Rashford's kind of stuck in that same situation. Vardy's obviously a nine, but Vardy's got limitations to his game. Um, And he's not like a a back-to-goal type of player. Giroud, Chelsea look much better when he plays. Again, they'll need to replace him. Now, Tammy Abraham's really good, and they could just do that. Antonio is not a top-class player. He's a very, very effective player, but not top-class. Calvert-Lewin is starting to develop really well over the last 18 months. Not top-class yet, but could get there. Ollie Watkins is still learning to play as a nine, but he's still more of an inside forward than anything. Bamford's good. You'd like him to be 10% better at everything, and then he could be very, very good. But he is good. But he's kind of your baseline. If you can get better than Bamford, you're going to have a good striker. Uh, Palace tried it with Benteke, but they need a new nine. Jimenez is good, not great, but good. Um, and again, he's that type. I think Ings would work well off a, a true number nine. Burnley obviously love the number nines. Brighton's biggest need is a number nine. Callum Wilson's done really well at Newcastle. If Fulham had had a proper number nine that had scored goals this year, they'd, have stayed, they'd be comfortably staying up. But Mitrovic has, has flopped badly. An upgrade on Mitrovic is what they what they really want there. Um, I quite like Carlin Grant. He's fallen foul of Big Sam. But it does seem to be that like Big Sam obviously loves a good number nine. And they've been playing um they've been playing since Sam took over uh with the Agne up front as as their nine, and he is that out and out nine type. So, yeah, I do think that the nines are becoming more popular again. I think there's only a couple of clubs still holding out on using one, Liverpool being one of them. I think that changes this summer. But, yeah, I, I do think um, I do think we'll see more and more nines come to the league and more and more high-end ones. And I, I like it. I do. I, I, football is cyclical, so it's cyclical. So it will come back round. I think it will come back around the next couple of years. Uh, Sean Coleman asks, in your five-a-side Nations tournament, how do you feel a Norwegian team fares and who do you pick for it? So myself and Carl Matchett did this over on Anfield Index and we insisted that you had to have a goalkeeper and then we largely went with one defensive player, two sort of kind of all-rounders and a nine. Um, 
Haaland is obviously the nine. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I think for Norway, though, the best way to do this uh, is to play two sort of attacking midfielders, one being Odegaard, um, who's tremendous. And I really like uh, Jens Petter Hage. I don't know. Again, I, I really need to learn how to pronounce people's names. But I really like him from Milan. Uh, only has the two caps now. But I would play those two as the kind of the middle two. And then I'd slot Sander Berger in as the defensive midfielder. Um, defensive midfielder slash defender. Christopher Ager I do like. And I really like the looks of Leo Ostergaard, who's on loan from Brighton at Coventry. But I think I would go Berger sitting, then Hodge, Hauga, whatever, Odegaard and Haaland as my as my outfielders. Goalkeeper, I'm not so sure on. I don't think I don't think they particularly have a good goalkeeper. Um Yarstein is the is the number one. He plays for Hertha Berlin. I'm not overly keen on him. Don't think he's great. He's got 72 caps. Um but he's lost his place at Hertha this year. He I wouldn't be wouldn't be keen on him. They don't really appear to have a whole lot in the way of young keepers, although Christopher Klassen, the under twenty one keeper, um, he's been called up to the senior squad in the last couple of months. So maybe him, but goalkeeper would be the issue for them. Uh, if they could get a goalkeeper, I think they could be really good because I really like what would be the front three. And I do really like Sander Berger. So, yeah, that's that's what I would go with there. Um, FC Molman asks, with Kane and Haaland being valued at 120 million plus, what other options could City look at that have the quality to start from them, seeing that they are likely to spend in the 60 to 70 million range? And I agree with this. I don't think City will buy Haaland or Kane, personally. I don't see them spending that type of money on one player. And when you see them in the same or the journalists in the same report say, Oh, well, like they, they, they like Haaland and Kane up front, but then they're not going to buy Jack Grealish because that's way over what they pay for players. Like, don't get me wrong. Jack Grealish is not worth anywhere close to a hundred million, but it does sort of make you stop and think, well, yeah, obviously they're not going to pay that ridiculous fee for, for Kane or Haaland. Um, I don't think Haaland moves this summer anyway. I think he will stay put. I think it's possible that they, that Kane might, but I mean, who's going to pay that kind of money for him at 28 with his injury history? He's great, but he's one bad knock on the ankle from being a crock that his ankle is literally made up of toilet paper and glue. It's just, it's not an ideal situation. I think Kane ends up staying at, at Spurs, at least until his contract expires. Um, but looking around Europe, I mean, Lukaku would be cheaper, but he'd be more than the 60 to 70 million. Immobile is probably too old for them at this point. Arturo Martinez is not an out-and-out nine, but might fit how they've played this year. He's the really interesting one. He's not an Aguero replacement, but he could replace Aguero in how they've played this season, which is kind of almost positionless. If you watch them play, they're playing... Their, their best team is probably Walker at right back, uh, Canseo at left back. And I think it's Diaz and Laporte. And the reason for that is that Walker, Diaz and Laporte can shuffle into a back three. Canseo steps into midfield next to Rodri. 
and Gundogan and De Bruyne, who start next to Rodri, are free to play a little bit further forward. And then you've got Sterling, Foden, and, say, Mares as your front three. Now, what you see then is it's basically a back three, two holding midfielders, and a front five that is just constantly in motion. And you'll see De Bruyne as the nine. You'll see De, you'll see Gundogan as the nine. Mares will be the nine. Sterling will be the nine. Then you'll see Sterling and Mares drop really wide almost as wingbacks to create width and hold defensive shape. City's team is basically five and five. It's five players that are there to be defensive and five players that are there to attack. And Arturo Martinez could fit really well into that because his movement, his pace, his intelligence, his ability to create for others could just be the perfect fit. If you bring him into that team, Bernardo Silva's the other one I didn't even mention. And he can play any of those positions and has played any of those five positions this season. But you'll watch them play and all of a sudden, Ilke Gundogan's playing left wing. Sterling is the nine. Foden's right wing. Mares is dropped a little bit deeper next to De Bruyne or he's playing right wing and, and Canseo's just stepped forward a little bit. City are a lot of fun to watch. When you actually stop and watch them carefully and watch the movement, it is, it's exceptional. So Arturo Martinez is somebody they could consider. Um, Mbappe's out of reach. I mean, I just don't see that kind of money being spent. But Amin Guri of Nice could be an option. He'd be cheaper, and he's more of, of a developmental piece at the moment. But he's someone they could look at. Memphis Depay would, funnily enough, be pretty much perfect for how they want to play. I don't think they'll look at him, though. Um... You look at the Bundesliga. Andre Silva, if they do want a nine, Andre Silva, to me, is one that makes a lot of sense. Financially, style-wise, I think he would fit really, really well there. Um, having a hell of a season, by the way, for, for uh, Eintracht Frankfurt. And then, outside of that, I mean, I, I think Larturo and, and Silva are probably the two, the two best options that stand out. Um, and Naziri would work for them as well. No question. He would work really well for them. Oh, Yarzabal at Sociedad is fascinating because he can play as a nine and he can play wide and you can use him in midfield. So he would fit again from a versatility standpoint. And his versatility might be a better fit than Arturo Martinez. But Martinez can play as a nine if you need him to. Yarzabal will play there, but it's just not... the the ideal fit, but he fits everything else really well. They'd be the top three that I would suggest. Yarzabel, Martinez, and Silva. All different types, but I think all fit in how City want to play. And I think especially uh, Martinez and Yarzabel allow Gabi Jesus to still be your nine. When you want to play with a nine, you use him. He's the nine off the bench, etc., and it keeps him engaged and it keeps him developing because he's still quite young. I mean, he's still a young player who's still learning how to play. He's not anywhere close to the finished product at this point. He hasn't developed, I don't think, the way City had hoped. But it's not like he's a bad player. And at 23, he'll turn 24 in a couple of days. He's still really, really young. He's a baby, really. But he's got a lot of experience. He's He's got 200 senior league games. Um 
at his back and 266 in all competitions to go with 41 Brazilian caps. Over 300 games at 23 is a hell of a record. And he scored 18 for Brazil and 108 at club level. So, you know, he does get you goals. This season's been a bit of a, a, a bit of a drop, but back-to-back 20-goal seasons at 21 and 22 years of age, nothing to be sniffed at. So for me, I would probably look at Arturo Martinez or Oyarzabal. And I would probably, of those two, I'd probably lean Oyarzabal. Because not only does he fit, but he's also your Mares replacement if Mares chooses to leave in a year. Uh, or if you choose to sell him. So that's that's what I would do. Um, Lewis Phillips asks, what does the Redbird investment mean for Liverpool right now and in the future? The truth is, I, I don't know. Um, I don't really think anybody outside of FSG and the, the hierarchy at Liverpool will really know. I'd imagine in the short term it helps them cover the losses from this past season and well, season and a half uh, caused by COVID. That's what I would imagine it does for Liverpool. Um, my hope is that in the kind of the future, it, it means what what we were talking about with um, with Callum's question of of you know the investment in other clubs around Europe and maybe building you know, a, a bit of a system to get the best talent to Liverpool where they can go and play and develop and not have to worry about the stress of Liverpool. And Liverpool aren't worrying about, oh, if, if he doesn't start well straight away, we're going to have to move on. Um, you know, and, and again, you can shuffle players around those those clubs easy enough if you want. A lot of clubs are doing it. So, you know, I mean, when Charlton were part of one, now it was, that was a disaster. That. The Charlton Athletic uh, example is the disaster of how that can go really badly. Roland de Châtelet almost ruined Charlton. And if you, if you haven't heard um, Getting to Know the Network, which is a four-part podcast, I highly recommend it. You'll find, I think it's on Spotify, but just it's definitely on SoundCloud and you can download it. So go on, just Google Getting to Know the Network. Um. Who's it by? That's the big question. Getting to know the network. Charlton FC. Right, the, there is actually a web a website called gettingtoknowthenetwork.com and all the episodes are there. They're, it's not the best, it's a very basic website, but all the episodes are there. It's four parts. It's really, really good. It's it's actually one of the best podcast series I've ever heard. It's brilliantly put together. And um, De Châtelet owned uh, St. Truden in Belgium, Karl Heiss Jena in Germany, Uspest in Hungary, Alcorcon in Spain, as well as Standard Liège and, um, and Charlton. And it was just a shambles, an absolute shambles of a situation. So do give that a listen. If you have the chance, uh, J- Jimmy stone is the guy who did it. He used to work for Charlton. Um, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I would I'd highly recommend that. Um, last question then, why NWA foodie? You are the new owner of Liverpool FC. You've been tasked to do a total rebuild. Who would be, who would you choose as the new manager 
a new sporting director, a new head of academy, and with a budget of two hundred million, a new starting eleven. Okay, um, so I'm assuming I can't have any of the people that are at the club already. So that's that's obviously put me on the back foot because Michael Edwards would be my choice as uh, director of football. But I will go with Luis Campos, who is the Lille director of football. Um, he just has done brilliant work at Lille, and you look at how they've you know bought in the likes of Nicolas Pepe and Victor Simeon, and then sold them on at massive profits. They'll do the same with Ronaldo Sanchez. Uh, Bubakari Samare, Sven Botman obviously will go for big money. Jonathan David's another. Um, So he is is the one I would go with as director of football. In terms of a coach, I mean, if I can pick anybody, I'd pick Simeone because I just love him. Um, I, I, I know he's not for everybody, but I love, I love Diego Simeone. So I would pick him. Uh, as for a starting eleven, I mean, this is this is difficult. So Simeone's going to play something in the region of a four-four-two. Um, he wants a, a big one and a little one up front. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go En Naziri and Nicholas Gonzalez of Stuttgart as my strikers. Now, I think I can get in Naziri for around 40 million. Um, and I think Gonzalez is probably 25. So that's 65 million straight out the door on that. Um, am I doing it this? I assume it's this summer that I'm doing it. Um, so. That's my strike pair. He's going to want two sitters in midfield. I'm going to go Bubakari Samari, who I think you'll get for about 25 million this summer. And he'll want someone. I think Joan Jordan is probably the best fit. Yeah, I'd go Joan Jordan or Joanne Jordan of Sevilla. I, I do quite like him. He's definitely going to want Ocampus, so we'll take him as well. I reckon the two of them are about 45. Um, so that's 135. On the right-hand side, he wants somebody who tucks in kind of as a playmaker. Now, I don't know if Brighton would sell him, but Alexis McAllister would be perfect. We'll just say 15 million. we just steal him off them for 15 million. So that's 140. That's 150 million. Um Adam. See, you've caught me on the hop here. Do you know what I'm going to do, actually? What I'm going to do, I'm going to go end Naziri up front with Gonzalez. I do want a campus on the left. 
And I do want McAllister. I do want Bubakari Samari. <clears throat> Next to him, I'm actually going to go for Bruno Gomerich, who's fallen out of favour at Lyon this season. So that's my midfield and attack. In defence, this is difficult. Um, see, the great thing with, with Simeone is that the defence, you don't really need to expect to have massive, massive names because he will just get the best out of any defender that you have or that you can give him. This would have been easier a couple of years ago when I could have just stolen Ezri Kanza and James Justin and gone with them. But I can't do that anymore because they're now £40 million players. Um, I'm going to go big for the goalkeeper because the one thing Simeone wants is a great goalkeeper. So I'm going to just sign Donnarumma on a free. You didn't say I couldn't have freeze. And you didn't give me a wage bill, so I'm going with him. I'm going with El Cid Hazaj, who's a free agent at my, as my right back. Jordan Amavi won't be everybody's cup of tea, but he's also a free agent, so I'll take him at left back. I won't take David, uh, David Alaba because I think that might be pushing the envelope a little bit too far. So what I've got, do you know what? We leave McAllister. McAllister's not going to be available. We're going to go Yangel Herrera from Manchester City, currently on loan at Granada. He's a very Simeone-type player. To push him into midfield, I think he would be available at a decent price. City tend to do, you know, like you look at Douglas Louise at Villa. What do they pay, like 12, 14 million for him? I think Herrera would be about the same. I've got Herrera, Samari, Gamerish, and Ocampos as my midfield. Gonzalez and En Naziri up front. I love that. I, I really do like that. I don't think it's overly expensive either. I think 65 gets you the front two. Probably another 60 between Ocampos and Herrera. That's 125. Samari... 150 Gamerish gives me the 20. That's 170. So I've got I've got 30 million to spend on a couple of centre backs, basically. Um the 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 bench is all academy players, and that's just what it's going to be. Um there's, there's a shortage of good options. Um He gets the best of every centre-back. Looking at players who are out of contract in 2022, I think... I think a kanji makes sense. I think he'd be about 15 million with a year left on his deal. And next to him, I'm not a huge fan, but Matthias Ginter's a good player. And I think with a year left, he's about a 15 million pound player as well. So I've got Donnarumma, 
I've got Hizaj, I've got Ginter, Akanji, Amavi. Not massively in love with the defence, I have to say, but, you know, the budget was small. But Simeone will work wonders with any defence. Uh, the midfield, I do like Herrera, Samari, Gamerish, and Ocampos, Gonzalez, and then Naziri up front. I think I give that team to Simeone with anything resembling a decent squad. Uh, I'm signing Daniel Sturridge as a free agent, as my you know my third attacker, my third striker. Uh, I think Simeone can get that team into Europe. So, yeah, that's it. Um, oh, sorry, you also asked for head of academy. Um, Rene Mullenstein. I, I would go for Rene Mullenstein. I, I think he's just. I think he's brilliant at what he does uh, in, in terms of developing players. So that would be it. Um, and I think, I think that's the last question. Is it? Let me see. No, I think we have one more. Okay, Anderson at SGA five five five. How long do you think it will take for Simicus to get playing time in the Premier League? Is Richarlison somebody we should have targeted? He's got about four, he's got about four questions here. Uh, so let's take this one by one. How long would it take for Simicus to get playing time? He would have already had it, but for the injury. And then was it COVID and then the injury? It was. It was COVID first, then the injury. He would have already had it. The plan this season was definitely to play the fullbacks less. Now, the Virgil injury also contributes to that because you don't want to be changing everything. And when you're when you when you've got Virgil, it's easier to play Simicus. When you've got Jordan Henderson at, le- at left side centre back, you can't play Simicus. So, I think next season, it, assuming he stays, now there is some rumours that he could be sold, and they may look to bring in an English left back or a British left back who counts as homegrown. Jamal Lewis's name is doing the rounds again. So is Lloyd Kelly's. So there is a possibility that they look to sell Simicus, who does have suitors, I think, in Italy with Napoli. And he was linked to somebody in Spain as well, but I can't think who it was. It could have been Sevilla. But yeah, I, I think there will be... There's a possibility he'll be sold and they look to bring in an English left back. But if not, I think he'll play quite a bit next season. And Robertson will be given more rest because... You can't afford to run the guy into the ground. He's so important. You need him to be performing at his optimum level all season. And if Liverpool are going to play 55 to 60 games in all competitions, ideally you only want Andy Robertson starting 35 to 40 of them and Simicus gets the other 20. Um, is Richarlison someone we should have targeted way back when? Apparently he is somebody we targeted way back when before he moved to Watford. Uh, from Fluminese, apparently he is someone we looked at, but Watford stole a march on him, and they got him at a good price. They paid eleven point two million for him um, in August of two thousand and seventeen. Now that's sixteen seventeen summer. Oh, sorry, that's the, that's the the seventeen eighteen season. Uh, Liverpool had spent quite a bit of money, but also wasted quite a bit of time trying to tie up some deals. So. They got Salah in, they got Solanke in, they got Robertson in, they got Oxlade-Chamberlain in. They spent most of the summer trying to get Naby Keita done and trying to get Van Dijk done. Keita would arrive a year later. Van Dijk obviously didn't arrive till the January. But yeah, it's it was rumoured at the time that that summer, Richarlison was someone that they did try and sign. Um, but they just got beaten to the punch, unfortunately, by Watford. Um 
why is Brighton underperforming their XG so much? Uh, they just don't have a number nine. They've got a lot of good attacking players. They've got a lot of creative players, but they don't have a consistent goal scorer. If they had just listened to me in the summer and signed someone who could put the ball in the net 15 times a season in the league, Voot uh, Veghorst was the one I pushed in the summer. Um, I think I think he'd still be a good fit, but again, there's other options. They did try and get Darwin Nunes, and I think if they had, I think he would have absolutely exploded there. Um, but for whatever reason, they missed out. He decided to go Benfica, and they didn't have a backup plan, which to me is strange. Um, that's basically why they just do not have a consistent clinical striker. Mopey's a good player, but he's a 10 to 12 goal a season guy. Trossard is a winger who plays, you know, in central areas when needed. He's an 8 to 10 goal a season guy. They need someone that's going to be in that 15 to 18 goal range. If they can add that this summer, I think they, they'll do much, much better next season. Um, how many goals would Ryan Brewster have gotten at Sheffield United this season if he had started each game with the beanpole? I assume by beanpole you mean Ollie McBurney. And I do think that's the pairing that would have worked best. Even though I think Lise Mousset is a better player, I think McBurney would have worked better with Brewster. Brewster would have done really well at Brighton this season, by the way. Um, I don't know. In that team, six to eight, maybe. It's not like they've been creating bundles of chances, but... You know, from flick-ons and, and just balls played into the channel, I think Brewster would have done a lot better if he played every game. And for me, you know, if you're going to continuously stick with Ramsdale at one end, who's actively costing you points, I think you should have stuck with Brewster as well and let him play through it and find a way. Uh, this season, I think, is going to absolutely ruin his confidence. I wouldn't be all that confident that he explodes next season either. I think he would have got somewhere in the region of six to eight if he'd played every game up front with McBurney. Um, I said this months ago. When it became clear they were going down, which was in about early December, maybe, they should have gone, right, let's start planning for next season. What are we going to do? Who's our front two next season? If it's these two, that's what we do. I think that they would have been better off if they'd done that. Um, and I think, yeah, six to eight goals. And that's it. That is the show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to producer Guy Drinkle for his endless putting up with me and my lateness and all other issues. And thank you to Fox Haunt for our title music. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.